Welcome to Right to Refuge, a podcast brought to you by Solidarity and hosted by Flipcasting, Director of Fundraising. Solidarity works to raise awareness of the injustices faced by refugees and asylum seekers worldwide and fundraises to provide grants to NGOs providing vital services in Greece. In each episode, I'll be joined by a different guest to break down an issue facing migrants and seek to understand the sustainable solutions. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Elliott, a politics professor at UCL. We're going to be discussing the idea of a politics of pity, what it is, its consequences, and how charities and the media can avoid perpetuating this narrative. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kathy. Thanks very much for having me. So I, just to get started, can you tell us a bit about what, what, the poli- what a politics of pity is um, mm-hmm. and how it kind of functions? Yeah, so this idea of a politics of pity, I think, goes back, I mean, it goes back a long way, but Hannah Arendt is one of the first people um, to write about it. And she's writing in the early 60s, and she's actually writing about the French Revolution. But what she says is that a politics of pity is quite different from a politics of compassion. And she says a politics of compassion is about an individual feeling suffering on behalf of another person so you might also think about empathy as being something which is shared and equal and she says a politics of pity is different from that um, because it's impersonal the person who's suffering is very different from the person who isn't suffering who's unaffected um, and therefore it creates a binary hierarchical relationship Um, And she says this is really political. So again, she's talking about the French Revolution. She's talking about Robespierre, who's not affected by the suffering of the masses, but uses that suffering to create a politics in which he and the revolutionaries have the kind of the right to act and the people who are suffering don't have the right to act. They just have to suffer. Um, And she says it's always a politics of spectacle as well. So um, and this is where sort of images and photography and things come into it later because pity is something which you always that the unaffected always gaze upon and so there has to be a spectacle of pity in order to create this kind of political reorganization of society in which some people are the experts and they get to act in order to solve the suffering of others and the others are kind of abject um so so that's what she says about it um that's not the only view of a politics of pity though Um, So Luke Boltanski, writing much later, so writing at the end of the 90s, he is in favour of a politics of pity because he says a politics of pity is how we decide who is worthy of help and who is worthy of sympathy. And so he says that being the case, we need to strategize pity. Um, So we need to use it politically in order to get help to people who need it. Right. So that's a a much more optimistic idea about a politics of pity. So there are these two sort of contending ideas about it, really. That's really interesting and really helpful, a really helpful overview. Thank you. Um, And I suppose we see kind of both sides of that in Mm. the area solidarity works. And we work with refugees who are having to flee their countries and the media obviously constructs its narratives using images um, Mm. and a lot of the time using a politics of pity, such as the images of Alan Kurdi, the child that washed up on the Turkish beach. Um, And while that does create a big divide between the observer and the people being observed, it does also have a concrete effect 
on the donations that charities received and it's a very effective way of fundraising so I think it's really difficult to navigate it so how do you think that kind of the media and the observer like come together and interact to create the narrative do you think that has an impact on how it functions yeah so I mean you've said a lot of very interesting things there so first of all talking about that image of Aileen Curdy so one of the things about politics of pity is that it needs an innocent victim right so the fact that it's that picture of a, a very small child who's clearly has no choice in the matter becomes the focus of a politics of pity I think that's really important so in terms of the way in which so um consumers of media will buy a story whether that's physically sort of buying the newspaper or whether it's buying into it sort of you know agreeing with it and sympathizing with it if they think that the person in the image is innocent and had no choice in the matter so that's a politics that's actually very vulnerable to the counter argument of oh yeah but these are people who know what they're doing they know that they're going to be illegal immigrants they're doing something that's against the law um there are legitimate routes which they should have taken and they didn't take those right so this idea that you need an innocent victim for a politics of pity i think is, is really quite quite difficult like can really easily unravel into a politics that i imagine you don't support right i don't support um and and then there is this question of whether or not these images are helpful in terms of donations and i think i mean i don't know whether you had that experience when that photograph came out that you as an organization got donations in sort of the next day we we didn't exist at this time uh, we right. were only set up in 2017 but okay the Swedish Red Cross has a Syrian refugee fund and in the week after Alan Kurdi's death um, donations rose 100 fold um, from fewer than 1,000 a day to almost 14,000. Right so that's that's very powerful evidence and I think in these kind of sometimes you have a moment and it's quite rare where a single photograph really catches people's imagination or a single story but it is usually a photograph we live in such a visual culture um, however, it, it isn't necessarily the case always that these images do get such a lot of attention. And in fact, the fact that we see them all the time means that they get less and less attention as time goes on as well. And so um, my actually my former PhD supervisor, David Hudson, um, along with um, other colleagues in um, UCL political science of Jennifer Hudson, um, Nahir Desandi and Susan Gaines, um, did some survey experiments um, and they showed people. So they, they split people into a control group and a treatment group. Um, and so they showed some people images of these kind of very upsetting images. Um, and in that case, I think it was famine images. Um, and then they showed the other group of people totally randomly um, images of um, what they said was a frame of solidarity. So in this case, it was a picture of a small boy presumably in sub-Saharan Africa, a small black boy, holding up a sign saying, I want to be a doctor, right? So not a politics of pity in that one. And they tested whether or not people gave more. And in fact, they, they didn't really. So there was no particular effect either way. Uh, people were just as willing to give to the frame of solidarity. Um, and they argue that, in fact, although you can sometimes get a sort of very strong response with these politics of pity, it can be counterproductive. Because if people feel disgust, um, then they won't give so much, right? So if you dehumanise people with these images, then actually it can be counterproductive even on that kind of level of the donations. Um, 
And they also argue that in the short term, these images might be quite good at getting donations out of people. But actually, in the long term, it's also counterproductive because it means that people think that the problem of poverty is only one you can solve by this kind of giving, right, donations, and that it will, and therefore it, it, it totally disengages them from other issues around development, which they might actually have more opportunity to affect. So when it comes to development, if you think about sort of what you buy, whether you buy fair trade or not, um, how you vote, those sorts of questions might actually be more important for international development. And you can think about it in the same way with refugees. The reason why you have children washing up on beaches in the Mediterranean is very political, right? And so actually, if people think the answer to that is just giving, this kind of depoliticized giving where you just give donations from a kind of objective position in this hierarchy where you're above the people who are pitied, um, then that might mean that you become completely disengaged from these much more difficult, actually, political questions of why is there a child on that beach? And did I, am I somehow complicit in that, right? Did the way that I vote, do the newspapers I buy, do the way I talk about refugees, does that all contribute to a situation where this is possible for this to happen? Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I think it's really, really complicated, but it, it's, it is not simplistically true that by showing these images, you will get more donations, or even that by showing these images, you'll sell more newspapers. So, yeah, definitely. And it sounds like from that research, um, with a frame of pity and a frame of solidarity, it's actually much more about getting the person's attention at all in a very fast-paced society. And the media uses kind of shock imagery and trauma to do that most times uh -huh. but that's not actually a more effective way it's just the way that the media tend to use more often um, yeah I think that's such a good point because actually there are some downsides of doing this kind of survey experiment and one of them is you've got a captive audience so you've already got their attention and then they just have to decide are they going to give the 10 pounds or are they going to keep it whereas it, it, you're absolutely right that in the kind of real world does it generalize to a situation where you know you're just going through your day and all you see is images all the time um, and which is the one that catches your attention is is a kind of is it get, the stakes of the competition get higher and higher mm. so yeah I think that's a good point I definitely think, though, that um, kind of being overwhelmed by this kind of imagery is a massive thing. I think we've seen this a lot with the Black Lives Matter movement um, and a lot of the videos of police brutality mm. um, that have circulated on social media networks and stuff. They're shocking, like shocking videos. It's shocking treatment by the police. Um, but people have really become kind of detached from it and they view it and they think it's wrong but they don't have that same visceral reaction that you would expect someone to have at that kind of brutality and I think it's a similar thing for refugees as well so I think definitely a politics of pity uh, on a large scale and an ongoing scale where there's always another thing can mm. really take people away from engaging with these issues and almost lead to a type of compassion fatigue, I suppose, but kind of a pity fatigue. <laughs> yeah. So I suppose there's two, I think you're pointing to two issues that I, I think I might be inclined to keep separate. I haven't thought about this very much, but um, so on the one hand, you've got, there's so much, there's so many images, there's such a lot of awful stuff happening in the world, and we get it 
constantly and we get it when we're not expecting it we're scrolling through our social media and there it is and we sort of we almost don't know how to respond because there's so much of it um, and whether or not people therefore just become used to it or inured to it or they don't respond to it in the same way and I'm actually I don't know whether that's true or not uh, but it seems anecdotally and sort of personally it seems like it might be and then there's this question of compassion fatigue, right? So does a politics of pity particularly, right? So a, a politics of police looking at police brutality is separate from a politics of pity, right? Does a politics of pity intensify that? Does it create compassion fatigue? And um, one of the writers who talks about this a lot, David Campbell, um, and talks about famine imagery quite a lot, he says that there isn't any evidence that he can point to that there is any compassion fatigue really people do still care they do keep caring um but for him the problem is not so much whether people care or not it's then what these images prompt them to do in response to caring um and and if that is just giving then that isn't the answer to these deeply political problems that refugees face yes definitely Mm. Um, that's really interesting and I guess I'm being a bit of a pessimist then about it Um, but that's really really I guess encouraging to hear but also it is concerning and we definitely do see this detachment of people from the issues that individual refugees face compared to the big political decisions that the government takes that lead to these situations And we've seen that very recently with the new plan for immigration um, being proposed and relatively little public engagement from it, about it, from what I've been able to see. Um, Whereas people obviously engage much more with the individual tragedies of, as you say, people seen as innocent victims. Do you think that kind of detachment from the politics is linked to the use of a politics of pity in the media so probably yes um i think that if the way that issues of migration are framed is always through these there are these piteous pitiable people who have to be innocent um, and therefore, when we find out they're not innocent, it becomes quite complicated, right? Um, and the only answer to that is because we're in this hierarchical relationship, is for us as the rich, powerful people to give to them, the poor, helpless people. Um, then I think that does then come into conflict with other priorities that people might have, right? So giving to charities close to home keeping their money and using it to support their children or other things that they think are perfectly legitimate worthy causes and are right Mm -hmm. so I think that by framing it in that way you frame it in terms of um, a kind of competition for resources right and a competition for who we can give to Um, and so it could certainly be framed in a different way Um, and I think you know one of the problems maybe we have those of us who really want refugees just to have better lives and opportunities, right? I think one of the problems that maybe we face is that either we present it as this kind of, here are these innocent victims that we need to give to, or we present it as here are loads of facts and figures, and here's how much economic growth refugees contribute to. And what we what we don't do so well, I think, is tell stories. 
So tell stories about the political situations which led to this happening. Tell stories in which people are their full complex selves. Tell stories which isn't about heroes and villains, um, which isn't about people who are totally sort of innocent weak victims, but actually stories in which people are just people um, and therefore have a lot to offer, have a lot to contribute, um, may, may have done shady things, may have done shady things because they were forced to, may have done shady things because they're not very nice, as lots of people aren't very nice, right? And so to, um, so there's a really nice book out recently by Toby Litt, um, which is talking about how actually the stories we tell in politics are a bit impoverished and don't really take into account this kind of human wholeness and that seems to me to be a more interesting avenue to go down if we want people to to really engage with these issues and engage with them on this kind of political level rather than on this kind of benevolent slightly sort of paternalistic level yeah definitely I think that's a line that all kind of refugee focused organizations have to kind of walk and navigate and work out the best way to do it and the kind of the idea of a politics of pity and um, kind of this paternalistic view and very one dimensional view of refugees um, is something solidarity has tried to avoid. And in doing so, we don't show refugee or asylum seeker faces in our work or in our website advertisements, that kind of thing to try and avoid this kind of white saviour versus the helpless refugee narrative um but we do find then that it becomes hard to connect the people that we engage with on our social media to the stories and the lives of refugees it, it's just quite a point of tension I suppose and I think a lot of other organisations have similar tensions and a lot of them go a different way where they will show images. Um, and I guess it's a question of what is what ways can NGOs create that emotional response and really get people to connect to the stories while avoiding the use of damaging stereotypes and this idea of the good refugee versus the bad refugee and also kind of avoiding it through people's own biases because we at Solidarity we know that we could post an image of a refugee with the best of intentions but people will bring their own biases to that image mm. and kind of how to navigate that in the media situation we live in is so difficult I don't know if you have any thoughts about that <laughs> it's so difficult and it's really interesting that you mentioned this idea of white saviorism because um it's unusual for me not to say it's for me not to say this at the beginning I don't know why I didn't but obviously when you're talking about this binary relationship this hierarchy between the kind of the expert person who gets to help and the piteous person who uh, you know needs the help that's a really racialized distinction always right it's always a white person helping a black or brown person um, and so that's really really important to acknowledge um and so David Campbell, who I mentioned before, I mean, one thing he says really clearly is, look, in his case, famine victims, but in your case, also refugees, they're not better off if we don't see them. Right. It's, you know, it's if 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 there are children lying dead on beaches, it doesn't help their families and the bereaved not to know and the you know future victims not to know that that's happening. Um, and so 
it's not whether or not we see people. Actually, we need to see them. It's politically imperative that we see what's happening. But it's more sort of how it's framed and how we think about it and how it also... So you're not, right, as a small organisation, you're not totally all-powerful, right? Of course, people are going to look at the images and they're going to link them to all these other images that they've seen. And so then they're going to understand it in a way that they're kind of primed already to understand it because they just live in this world where, oh, now we can see that there's the innocent victim and then we have to give money and that's kind of a habitual response. So so I was really interested that you don't use these, you don't show faces. So what do you show? Like, how do you do it? How do you navigate it? So it's kind of an ongoing iterative thing, iterative thing with us. Um, we are quite a new organisation. We're still kind of working out what works best. Um, our policy kind of comes from the fact that if we use images of refugees in asking for donations, we don't know that that individual is going to benefit. Um, we can't be sure that they will be one of the beneficiaries. So using their image to garner donations feels difficult. It feels like a sticky, a sticky situation. Um, and we don't want to exploit the images of people who may not have given permission for that image to be taken or used. And we don't work personally with refugees or asylum seekers as an organisation because we're grant giving. So we rely on other organisations for the images, which I think makes us particularly wary about where they come from and the treatment and the support or the options for consent that the refugee or asylum seeker has been given so we do a lot of infographics and kind of drawings that kind of thing um and at the moment we're really working on improving our inclusion on our representation of the stories of people with lived experience of seeking asylum in a way that they're in control of their narratives and they're in control of what is shown or what is used to represent them. So that's kind of the way we're trying to avoid it. Um, but it is still a very big learning curve and we're still kind of trying to work out the best way to do that. And I think that sort of leads on to kind of who has the responsibility regarding a politics of pity um, or regarding the representation of refugees and asylum seekers is it obviously you note that it's really important for people to see the situations that refugees are having to go through and that's so true so is it a responsibility on the people taking the images is it on the media is it on the ngos is it actually nothing to do with the images themselves and about the kind of text and the framing so I mean I don't think responsibility can be individualized in that way right so I think that um even if you give cameras to refugees and asylum seekers themselves and you say just take whatever photograph you want probably they're going to just take the same old photographs that we keep seeing uh, obviously within the context of what's around them because we all live within these kind of stereotypes. And so we're all sort of primed to notice those things, right? So, you know, there were there would have been, that day on the beach, there would have been lots of other photographs taken. 
of different people, of different angles, um, of other people who had drowned, other people drowned that day, I believe. Um, and so the fact that that is the image that became so popular is partly because there's a much broader responsibility for the fact that these are the images that become popular and these are the images we're used to. And so nobody can change that on their own. No individual photographer can change that. You can't change that. I can't change that. We can change the way we respond to it. Um, so we can sort of practice critique. We can notice when we see these pictures and we can think to ourselves, what is this picture doing? How am I responding to it? What would be a better way? Can I find out more about the politics of this situation? Um, and I suppose for you, the question might be, how do I, how do we communicate the politics of this situation? So is the answer infographics, which sets us up as the kind of experts, right? Which seems actually to play a similar role to that kind of hierarchy Um, or is it drawing and then who gets to do the drawing and then what stories do you tell with the drawing um, that sounds very nice to me um i saw a picture recently on insta i think it was from choose love who's another refugee organization and they were saying it was just a picture of, it was the day when there'd been a, a serious uh, a sort of large number of drownings in the mediterranean and they just had the picture there of the cold sea um and i found that very sort of moving and emotive um and then the text underneath it kind of explained the situation and the politics of the situation and what happened and why, you know, lifeboats aren't sent out to support those people unless it's paid for by organisations like yours. Um, and I thought that although it was a very simple picture, it was actually really powerful in terms of the way it was set in context with that text. And it really it did grab me. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, it's an ongoing problem. How do we create images that people will engage with how do we tell stories that people will engage with um in in a world where people are sort of moving on quite quickly and in some ways one of the things we do need to do is build build new sorts of people right <laughs> which which starts from when we're very young right that's a question for educators question for educators like me it's a question for educators in school um so in order to build a politics you can't do it from an individual image but you've got to actually build it from how do we create audiences um, and how do we create audiences who are more empathetic and less prone to reacting with pity? So, yeah, sorry, no easy answer. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's that's true of a lot of these kind of discussions. Of it's just trying to work it out. Um, and do you have, I suppose this is a bit away from kind of a politics of pity specifically, but do you have any thoughts on how we as just kind of individuals in our le- everyday lives who support refugees or support Black Lives Matter or whatever the kind of specific societal issue is, um, can address or tackle these unconscious biases, both in our own thoughts, but also in those around us and in the media, just kind of in our everyday lives. Yeah, so... I really think it comes back to that practice of critique. Um, so, and I, this is something that I teach in my class, which I know that the reason that I'm on this podcast is because uh, one of my former students is involved with, um, with solidarity. Um, and so I was sort of joking a little bit when I said we need to create new people, but I'm also sort of not joking, right? The sorts yeah. of people we are is learned, right? So we learn that, um, 
we as white people are the saviors right and we're the ones that give the money and we're the ones that go on gap years and we're the ones who know best and therefore we can teach everybody else in the in the whole world the whole rest of the world um, how to live their lives right that's learned right nobody's born thinking that um, and so actually i think we can everybody can sort of engage in what um michel foucault the french philosopher called practices of the self right ways of trying to think about how am i complicit in this situation um when have i seen this picture before what does it mean what is it doing um what is it asking from me um and do i need to respond to it in the way that i've always responded or could i respond to it in a different way um and so i just think actually that sort of ongoing practice of critique and then once you've sort of got good at it in your own internal monologue also engaging in that with other people having those conversations um and those conversations need to be slow Right. So we're very used to you see an image, you give money, you feel better quickly. Right. But actually, the difficult work of politics is slow work. It's going to take time um, and it's going to be very deliberative. um, And it might involve some very difficult emotions that we have to sit with rather than just giving that money to dispel them. And I think that is how we start creating different sorts of people who can live in community um, with other people who, you know, have been displaced um, and are so it's a question of how can we make our communities convivial and hospitable for those people who want to be part of them or need to be part of them um what sorts of people would we need to be in order to do that some big (laughs) some big rethinking we we all need to be doing on the daily basis definitely and um just a final question because we're short on time um what do you think um kind of going forward obviously as two individuals we don't really have the power to change this but kind of in your ideal world uh what do you think going forward kind of the media or organizations that use images and narratives could be doing um to kind of avoid a politics of pity or avoid using it in an exploitative way yeah, so I mean, it, it's very difficult, and anything you try is always fraught with danger, right? So if you think back to Luke Boltanski um, and his idea that we can strategize pity and we can expand the circle of people who we think are worthy of help, um, and yet we know that that can go down a dark road. So I, I always feel like anything you suggest, anything you try, could go down a dark road, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Um, so I mean, my my thoughts at the moment are all around stories and actually just getting some of those stories out there um, and making them compelling so that people are interested in them and want to read them, um, but not trying to portray people as innocent victims, but actually trying to get at what's happened to you. Who are you? Where did you come from? Um, what what have you been through? Why are you here? Um, and yeah, so I think telling those stories in a kind of emotionally gripping way so that people will want to know about them and then they will identify with or care about the people in those stories I think that's very very powerful so that's that's what I would like more stories I think stories are so powerful and that's such a kind of lovely note to end on (laughs) kind of the positive optimistic thought for the future um thank you so much for joining for this conversation it's been really interesting oh thanks for having me on and good luck with everything you're doing it sounds fantastic
Thank you for listening to Right to Refuge. If you want to dig deeper into the issues discussed in this episode, we have collated further reading resources on our website. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating and share on social media. For more information about Solidarity, our guests and the work we do, all our links are in the show notes.